As I mentioned, grateful the kids will be with us this morning, so sincerely making eye contact with you. They'll be passing out the um, uh, coloring sheets, uh, so that will be going around for a few minutes. Uh, so grab that one, grab a coloring sheet, and then after the service is over, come on up and see me, and uh, you'll get a piece of candy. So that'll be fun. Students, just trying to debate if I'm going to let you do it too, I guess. I'll be nice this time, so you can, you can do it as well. Uh, so that will be coming around. So I know most of you guys, but for those that don't know me, my name is Samuel Johnson. I am a pastoral resident here, and uh, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, will be ordained uh, as an elder. So. Thank you. That's kind. Looking forward to that. Uh, sincerely honored. And uh, for many of you may know this as well, Mike Seaver, lead pastor, is out of town with him and his family. They're on vacation. So if you could be praying for them, that the Lord would refresh their hearts and their souls as they go up to a camp in Michigan that I actually, funny story, grew up um, on this camp, Life Action Camp up in Michigan, and I know it will be a sweet time. Um, So just pray that the Lord would refresh their hearts, uh, energize them for this next season of life and all that the Lord has in store. Um, So be praying for that. If you would, while they're passing around, go ahead and turn to Revelation 5. We're continuing our way through Revelation, and I trust that the Lord has been ministering to each one of you as he's been ministering to my own heart in this study and as we've dive in the deep end in some sense. But I, I hope you've been encouraged as well by how much there is to glean and how deep and the wealth of God's word and the riches we have, even in a more complicated and maybe scary book like the book of Revelation. But we are happy to be going through this, happy to be learning from this book. Well, do you remember when you were saved? So Adam Taylor referenced the point in which he realized, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Do you remember, ponder with me that moment when you understood reality as it is, that you are broken and that you're sinful before holy God and it didn't just stop there, but then you came to understand, wow, there is hope for me in the gospel. That there is hope for me. I'm not stuck in this brokenness. No, but there's a Savior. Do you remember that moment? Remember that time? And maybe maybe you grew up in a church um, and you're around it all the time and you're not exactly sure of that moment. But you can look back in your life and you remember the point in which you were dead and you lived in selfishness even as a good kid. And then God saved you some point in there. And now the Lord is changing you. And you have the hope of the gospel and the future glory that awaits us, that this broken world is not all that there is, but Jesus is coming back. And so you come with this hope. Now ponder with me what it would be like to just have the first part of that, that you realize your sin, that you realize God's holiness as trice holy, 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 but there's a period there. That's it. There is no Savior. There is no hope. 
Well, as we enter into the fifth chapter of Revelation, John gets a taste of this. It's interesting. God gives John a taste of this, what it would be like if there was no hope. But there's a quick turn, and he does this so that we might glory, that John might glory, and that we might glory in the supremely valuable Savior. So the main takeaway today is this, that Jesus is the only one worthy to redeem a royal priesthood for God because of his death, and is therefore worthy of all our worship. So if you've turned to Revelation 5, read it with me. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Elders fell down and worshipped. Point number one for today, the scroll and the seals, verses one through four. So in chapter five, we again enter into the holy of holies. Just like in a movie where you pause the scene, we've done that because between four and five, those are both one main vision of the throne room. And we put a pause on it, and now we're coming back in to the scene And at the beginning of the second half of the scene, as chapter 5 begins, John zooms in on a scroll that the Father is holding. Verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand 
of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And we're immediately clued into the importance of the scroll when there's a resounding question announced by an angel. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So what is so special about the scroll? What, um, what is it about? Why is it so important? And scroll can also be translated as book. But then also, what's the seals? What is going on? As to be expected, John is writing with the palette of the Old Testament. So back in Daniel chapter 12, concerning the fulfillment of God's justice and redemption decreed by God, Daniel is told to seal a book. And that book contains the prophecy of God's coming judgment and redemption. And then as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, this will be exposited as we go on. The scroll is the basis for God's justice and redemption. When a seal is broken, it symbolizes God's redeeming justice taking place on earth and in heaven. So to break the seal on a scroll means that you have to have the authority to accomplish what God has decreed. And then if you break it, you must do it. It is done. It's decreed. It is finished. So in other words, you get to do what only God can do. So there's this great dilemma, right? Who is able to do this? Who is worthy? Who has the authority to come up to the throne and take the scroll from the Father? And remember chapter 4. Remember chapter 4 the God that you would be approaching, right? He has a throne in heaven. All of the universe, every molecule is under his command. He sees all things. He knows all things, everything about you. The most intimidating of creatures fall before his throne. The universe itself is centered, literally centered around him. He is the eternal one. He's the creator of all things. By his will, all creation exists. If he snaps his finger, we're done if he chose. And then, not only is he creator, but he is holy, holy, holy. He is perfectly devoted to himself in holiness and separate from all sin. So you see the dilemma, right? You can't just waltz up to this God and expect to take this because you would be incinerated by the holy wrath of God, right? The righteous wrath of God for your sin, right? We know the truth. We are not worthy to go up and take this scroll, we're not even worthy to look at the scroll. We're not even worthy to look in the scroll, right? If we tried to do this, we would perish. We know the assessment that Paul writes is true. No one is righteous. No, not one. We know this intuitively in our hearts. The question then becomes, why do we think we can take the scroll? Why do we try to acquit our own guilt through self-condemnation, heaping piles of guilt on ourselves, thinking that we can satisfy God's justice instead of resting in the cross? 
right? We sit, we stay in the court of our own minds as accusations are thrown at us, and we feel like that will make us more righteous. Or maybe, maybe your thing is to run to worldly wisdom to be your savior. Just do the thing in life that you love and you'll be happy. That's all it is. It's pretty simple. Or you follow the five steps to be happy, to have a happy life, right? Or maybe you, you love to listen to things that speak untruth, like your sin isn't really sinful, it's just the way you're wired. You'll be fine. And you're suffering. Do you run to the bottle or porn or food? A relationship when you're or do you run to anxiety thinking that you somehow have control over your life over your circumstances you think you can be your own savior if you just figure out what's going to happen and then our hearts don't often even stop there they often even try to we try to be the savior for other people do you act as if you're the holy spirit for other people what do I mean by that? That you're, you kind of view yourself as the only one who can see rightly into other people's lives. That you've got it figured out. That it's your job to bring correction whenever there's anything that's wrong that you see, because obviously you see it perfectly. And so any conversation, you know, that's just pride on their part because I see it clearly. So our hearts don't even stop with trying to save ourselves. We have the audacity to think that we can save other people. And kids, what do you run to to be your savior? I remember as a child growing up, I grew up on the camp I mentioned earlier, and uh, I loved just looking forward to the next big thing, like the, the next big event the next soccer game, I love soccer, so the next soccer game, maybe it's something else for you, going swimming with friends, and the Lord struck my heart one day that I was trusting those things to be my savior. I was looking for ultimate satisfaction in those things, in the next sleepover, in the next game night, whatever it may be. So kids, what are you looking for to be your savior? The reality is we all know our saviors that we create are so deficient, are they not? So deficient. And when the question is asked of who is worthy, there are crickets in all of heaven and earth, and there is a swift verdict. It doesn't take long. You didn't have to think about it. No one is worthy to take the scroll. No one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll this is verse three, or even to look into it. No one can even peek into the scroll. No one is getting close to the throne. And this so rightly disturbed John that he weeps loudly. That's his response. He wails. When my grandpa died and I was standing by the gravesite, I wailed. Maybe you can think of times in your life when you have wailed. That is what John is doing right here. See, John understood what was going on. 
John had stood by, remember this is John writing, John had stood by and watched as disciple after disciple after disciple had been killed for their faith. The churches are being persecuted that he knows of. He's been exiled. He fought for the faith. He trusted Jesus. Is no one worthy? Was it all for nothing? Will no one bring justice? You can imagine him thinking about Feel the weight of this moment. No one is worthy. We're meant to. That's why we see John's response like this. Remember when you understood your sin before a holy God and put a period there. John wept. And if this was the end of the story, we should too. But it's not. Praise be to God. There is a character that steps up to the plate, and he is worthy. So point number two, the lamb, verses five through seven. Verses five through seven, read with me. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who is the one who is worthy? We're introduced to him in verse 5. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. See, these two names can be traced all the way back to Genesis and Isaiah. The ESV Study Bible helpfully commentates on this. It writes, The lion of the tribe of Judah echoes Jacob's blessing on Judah conferring leadership over his brothers. In the Old Testament, the Messiah was the branch to spring from Jesse's root to restore David's dynasty. But now he is also called the root of David because Jesus is not only the royal descendant, but also the source of David's rule. Right. These names reveal that Jesus is the eternal one. He is both God and man, and he is the ruler of God's people. He is a lion. And he didn't merely exist and earn the right to open the scroll. What does the text say? What does it say? No, it says the lion conquered so that he can open the scroll. You see, he, the lion, is able to fully accomplish redemption and justice because he conquered. While none of us can even take a place in the throne room, have no right to go up to the scroll, he does. He does. He earned the right. He conquered. He conquered, overcoming sin, death, Satan, and the grave, and was vindicated through his resurrection, saying, yes, he is worthy, worthy, worthy. He has earned this right through conquering. G.K. Bill helpfully commentates, Christ overcoming of the enemy places him in a sovereign position to affect the divine plan of redemption and judgment, as symbolized by the opening of the book in the seals. 
The fact that Christ has overcome is the basis for the exhortation to the believers in the seven churches to overcome by his grace in their daily lives. Friends, this is why John need no longer weep, nor should we. In Christ conquering, the church conquers. And we'll see this played out as we go on throughout the chapter and the rest of the book. And then the lens shifts. And we get a visual, it kind of zooms out, moves over, and we get a visual of how this lion accomplished the conquering. Read verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Friends, catch this. The lion conquered by being a lamb that was slain. The lion conquered by being a lamb that was slain. As prophesied throughout the Old Testament, Passover and fulfilled in the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, Jesus as the lamb, the perfect lamb of God, was slain. He was led to the slaughter, even though he did not deserve it. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. And it was the will of the Father to crush him. On him was laid the iniquity of us all for his bride that he might purify and redeem and rescue and conquer on her behalf. He is the conqueror. The church conquers because he did. Because we have a Savior who suffered, we can overcome And in the midst of all this, I love this, in the midst of all this, he absolutely mocks all the powers of hell. What do I mean? Well, we're familiar at this point. Uh, You see the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. We've been kind of introduced to that idea of seven relating to the Holy Spirit as the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're familiar with that. But why does it describe him as having seven horns? What's going on there? To understand this, we have to understand the vision given in the book of Daniel again. And again, Beale helpfully summarizes this for us. He says, the lamb's seven horns signify its power. The picture here seems particularly to refer to Daniel 7, where the horn of the beast makes war against the saints. In John's vision, the lamb makes a mockery of the prophesied apparent victory of the beast by showing that true power belongs to the one who was slain. The number seven indicates the fullness of its power. He mocks all the powers of hell. Can you imagine how anxious Satan was to kill Jesus? So there's that point in which he fills Uh, Judas to go and accomplish betraying Jesus. So Satan is pursuing the death of Jesus, and then all that happens, what? So that Satan is defeated. So he, he signed his own death warrant by trying to accomplish the death of Jesus. I mean, how frustrating would that be as an enemy? I mean, it's like everything you do is actually backfiring, right? It's embarrassing. He's put to open shame. And then on top of that, to make matters worse for Satan, That is, Jesus being slain 
is the inauguration of the victory and the assurance of his completion for the saints. Therefore, Satan's future attacks on the church are ultimately meaningless. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Mocks, he mocks Satan. This is our redeeming, conquering king. He has rendered Satan useless. And in the hurry of reading the text, uh, we must not overlook the placement of where the lamb is. Where does it say he is? It says he's among the elders. The, the elders represent God's people. Just like Jesus is walking among his church in chapter 1, here he is seen as identifying and being with his people that he purchased. Oh, what love and care. In the middle of the church's suffering, they needed again to see that Jesus is with them, and we need to see that too. Right? He's not ashamed of his people in the throne room. He is with them. He's not having us hide off in the corner, be like, okay, they're unworthy, I'm going to stick them over here. No, he's not ashamed to call us friends. He's a brother. And what does he do? Verse 7, he waltzes up to the throne and takes the scroll. I can imagine everyone in heaven is, is, this is a very intense moment, right? Who is worthy? Lamb shows up. And there's this intense moment where they're watching breathlessly as Jesus walks up and takes the scroll from the hand of the Father. What a scene. And we mustn't think here in this scene that the father is like begrudging, kind of like, oh, I got to give it. I, I don't want to do this. No, he is happy to make this happen. It is his will to make this happen. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this, therefore God has highly exalted him, who's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father is pleased to hand a scroll to the Son. He is pleased. This is a moment showing the unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are all involved in creation, now all involved in new creation, the redemption of the people of God, and then the justice that accompanies it. Friends, this is the God that the early church needed to see, and it is the God that we need to behold today. We need this same vision. Friends, he is with you. He has conquered on your behalf. If you have trusted and turned to him, he is your conquering king. He is worthy to accomplish redemption. And not only that, but he will have full vengeance on the enemies of God and his people. And so in the already not yet, just as our lamb conquered through suffering, we can do the same by his spirit. And friends, when Jesus takes the scroll, I love this, there is a universal explosion of praise. Universal explosion of praise. So point number three, the triumphant worship, verses 8 through 14. The triumphant worship. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked. And I heard around the throne of living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, glory and might forever, ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. There was a universal explosion out from the throne room and to greater and greater layers. There's the elders and the four living creatures. They bow down and worship. Then it's them plus thousands upon thousands of angels. And then it's them plus it's every creature there is in heaven and on earth. Friends, this scene, the universe is finally doing its one job, worship. And if this doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. This is what we're headed for. This is our future for all those in Christ. This has been the plan all along from Genesis to Revelation. God is after his rightful worship. Think of Genesis, God telling Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiplying, having dominion over all the earth as little worshipers, royal priesthood before God. And then in Habakkuk, Habakkuk is given a vision of the day when his glory, God's glory, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So here we get to see that fulfilled. We get to see a window into what is to come and how it was accomplished. This is where we're headed. It begins around the throne and spreads to the farthest corners and reaches of the universe. And guys, you and me in Somerville, South Carolina, get to get in on the action. We, for all those who are in Christ, no matter where you are, no matter how small of a town, you get to get on the action of making much of King Jesus. We have this awesome privilege. So, friends, how are you doing? I've been just thinking about singing. Do you feel awkward singing? Does it feel unbecoming to posture your body in a way that even reflects worship? No one's worried about that around the throne. You don't see Peter like looking over at James and being like, oh, he gave me a funny look. I'm, I'm not going to bow down and worship. I'm going to you know, sit here and act like nothing's going on. No, they are after adoration of their king. See, they're not performers. Performers, if we were performers, that would be our concern, would be what do other people think of us? How loud am I? Do I sound good? All those things because that's what you're intended to do. But rather, friends, we are not performers. They were not. We are not. We are worshipers. Worshipers one job is simply to respond rightly to what's in front of them, to the beauty that is before them. 
And what is this beauty? Well, they declare it in multiple ways. It's Jesus. And what do they declare about him? First, his redeeming work, verses 9 through 10. He has redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. He has compiled them into a royal priesthood that will reign with him. Ponder that. See how broad and vast the mission of God is. He's getting people from everywhere. That's his goal. That's his task. He's getting worshipers from everywhere. As theologian, theologian John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. And one day there will be no need for missions because every creature will bow and worship. And then God doesn't simply place those worshipers, his church, at arm's length. Like you go stand off in the distance. No, he brings them in to be priests, to rule and reign with him over all creation. Paul even says that we will judge the angels. Second, his character. Listen to all the accolades. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. My voice is about to give out from repetition, but that's what they're doing. I mean, they're just going ham. They are honoring the one before them. And these are deserved. Jesus is the source of all these things. Father is the source of all these things. They're prescribing the attributes of God. And it's not often as we think, right? Like in our culture, we have something like an honorary PhD, which isn't deserved, but it's given. That is not what's going on here. They simply see and value Jesus for who he is and what he's done. He deserves this praise, and he's the only one who does. He's the only one who's worthy. The late Timothy Keller defines worship as this. Worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. Does your heart, friends, and your voice reflect his worth? Does your heart and your voice reflect his his worth. Are you a performer or are you a worshiper? Do you belt praises singing in the car and at church, raise your hands, but your heart is cold? Or maybe your heart is warm to the Lord, but I don't want to be too expressive. People are looking, might get a little awkward. So thoughts about what people are thinking Overcome your heart rather than adoration of the one who deserves it. Or do you see the scene and think, what's the big deal? Are your affections moved by Jesus as the lamb that was slain? Does your heart beam with joy at the power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, beauty, glory, majesty, and happiness of God? And friends, praise the Lord. <laughs> Jesus did not redeem us because we're perfect worshipers. Praise the Lord. It's not dependent on that. He's worthy. We're not. But also praise the Lord that one day we will be perfect worshipers. And praise the Lord of that because he is worthy of that worship. And so for all those united to Christ, this is the glorious future of our salvation. And we get a foretaste of it now. Um, band, you can come up. I loved listening. I don't know if you've ever stopped as we're singing as a church and just listened. 
Just listen to the chorus of people valuing Jesus Christ for who he is. The one that is worthy. So, friends, every molecule in the universe is simply about worship. Both creation, which is emphasized in chapter 4, and redemption, which is chapter 5, are about worship. And if God is about worship, then so should we. So as we go into this next song, and even for the rest of our lives, let's get in on it. Let's go after it. He is worthy. We are not performers, we're worshipers. And so would you stand with me, and let's sing to the Lamb who is worthy.